Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're going to be in the book of Numbers. So we are starting off on a new book, and we will get through the book of Numbers in who knows how long, but we're going to do two chapters tonight, and they're long chapters. So it starts off, uh, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness at Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, and I'll stop there for a second, give a little overview for numbers. Um, so the word numbers is in the Greek. Most of the book titles that we have are from the Greek version of the Bible or the Septuagint. And numbers is arithmos, which is the root word of the word arithmetic. Um, it's the same kind of idea. And there are numbers in, uh, in the book, of course, uh, but usually they find things right up in the beginning of the book, and we have that right here. So the first chapter is a list of numbers. The entire book is the story of them going through the wilderness. So it says, now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. In the wilderness is what the Hebrew name of the book is, or the Jewish name of the book. It's called Midbar. So if you look in the Torah, this book is called Midbar. And that means in the Hebrew, in the wilderness, which comes right out of the first sentence. And a wilderness is not a place that you stay. It's the place that you drive your flocks through, because if you left your flocks there, they would die. So over time, they would eat the plants that were there and they'd be gone. So as you go through the wilderness, the point is to not stay in the wilderness. And this whole book is about them getting lost in the wilderness for 38 years. That's the period of time we're going to cover is them getting stuck. They've been at Sinai now for two years and they're eating manna every day. So by the time they take off, I'm thinking they're pretty excited to take off because they've been eating the same food every day for two years. So if this book is about getting lost in the wilderness, the question we ask as readers when we get to the book of Numbers is how do they get lost in the wilderness and why do they get lost in the wilderness and how do they get themselves out? So it's also a book about how you get out of the wilderness and where you go from there, and what you do, and how you do it. So this is probably the nicest part about Numbers, is not that it opens with a series of things that put you to sleep. The nicest part about Numbers is if you do your homework on Numbers, and the, the truths that are in here are how to get yourself out of the doldrums. And the spiritual application of Numbers, if you take what Israel did and make it your own, it is a way to kind of move on with life when you're stuck in a period of your life where you don't feel like you're moving. Um, the first day of the second month means it's been one year and two months since the Passover. Um, when they had Passover, remember they spent, had spent about 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and then they spent one year in the Exodus process. And then the entire book of Leviticus was approximately one month of time, uh, where they get the law, they get the 
the festivals, the feasts, they get the sacrifices. And then the book of Numbers is going to cover 38 years. So one year for Exodus, thousand, couple thousand years for Genesis, a month for Leviticus, and about 38 years for the book of Numbers. They have two censuses in the book of Numbers, so this is how it's structured. In chapter 1, there's a census of people, and in chapter 26, at the end of the book, there's another census of people. And in between, there's this lost time of 15 chapters where they get ready to move, which doesn't sound like a lot of activity, again, a lot like Leviticus. In 15 through 20, then, they're getting ready, they get set up, and then in 16, in literally like a sentence or two, there's a time that passes and a whole new generation shows up. So two generations are represented in this book, the generation that doesn't get into the Holy Land and the generation that will get into the Holy Land. And that's kind of how what's different between those generations. The dividing shift in the middle of the book is Aaron getting unrobed and his descendant taking over as high priest. It's almost like that first generation of priests, maybe because of Nadab and Abihu, weren't the ones God wanted to be in charge, or he at least wanted a generation to pass before they went into the Holy Land. So he gets anointed in Leviticus 8, and then he's going to be unrobed in, in Numbers, and God waits for them to make all these changes so they can move on. A reference to out of the land of Egypt in verse 1 is reminding us, it's almost like Leviticus was a book that was out of the chronological storyline. It was the law, it was the rules, it was the rules for the priesthood, it was the rules for worship, and now we're kind of back to the story, right? So we pick up as they leave Egypt. Last thing about this is that if they now know the law and what God wants to do, wants them to be doing, it's another thing for them to actually be doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? And we had a lot of that in Leviticus. Very high standards, very hard to meet those standards, but now you see the people learning how to do those things that God asked them to do. And that's, I think, what's cool about this book. So where Leviticus teaches worship and holy steps towards holiness, Numbers teaches how to faithfully walk and how to stop when God wants you to stop and how to do that. There's lots of ways that you get from Egypt to the wilderness. There's only one way that God wants for them to get out of the wilderness. And there's kind of one path to do it. And straight and narrow is the way. Um, so God's going to speak to Moses in this book. Um, lots. <laughs> in fact, over 150 times he will speak to Moses. Um, so there is... Uh, there's lots of different um, directions that God gives to Moses and the people as to do this. So we're going to take off in book one, and we're going to go through each of the tribes of Israel, and each house is going to get a new name. So the names they got, remember back in Genesis when Jacob kind of said a prophecy over each of his kids? These names then are significant because they get paired with the tribal head and then the new name that's going to take over, and we'll come to that. So verse 2. God said, telling Moses, take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, every male individually. And that's where you get the word number. And that's where the Greeks got their name for the book. This order gets rephrased in verse three. Um, but first and foremost, God wants the family to be the key unit. And I think that's why they repeat this order in verses two and verses three is that first God wants the family to be prominent. And it starts everything by their family. You can underline that. Uh, the family unit is the core to this nation and how it works. 
It's where they start, it's where they end, it's where they rise, it's where they set, and it's the platform from which they're going to take off from in the book of Numbers. First um, Timothy 3, that family is also a qualification for ministry. So the family is the unit of measure. Verse 3, notice that the order kind of gets repeated. Hey, Paul, we're on verse 3. From 20 years old and above, all you who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. So in verse 3, they get numbered by their armies. The Hebrew word is hosts, uh, which means a group of people that would march as to war. So they're a host of people. God is then going to organize Israel in this chapter and the next chapter like an army because they're going in to conquer a new land. And the first thing an army does is it gets organized. It's not willy-nilly, everybody putting their tent where they want. They're going to get locations. They're going to get places. They're going to be in rows, and they're going to start getting organized. So this census then is a military census. The census we saw in Exodus 30, that was a very different kind of census. Remember, everybody just put a coin in the pot, and then they counted up the coins, and they had the money for the, the temple. In this one, they're not putting money in a pot. They're counting things according to family heads. So they're doing it extremely differently than they were before. How would you organize a census like this? It would take somebody with Moses' training to do it. Remember, he was a military commander in Egypt. So he knows how to do this. He knows how to organize things in that kind of way. So they're preparing for a struggle when they use that kind of language. And moving into the promised land will be a struggle as it is in our Christian life. You can get saved, but the path towards the kingdom of heaven is a struggle that you're going to go through. And that's the promise. So all of those that are able to go to war means there's some people that are not able to go to war, and that's not a bad thing, but the numbers we're going to get here are not a full population number. So babies can't go to war, at least in the real world, um, and there's going to be a certain age at which people are too old to go to war. They don't expect women to go to war, and they don't expect people that have disabilities to be going to war. So with that, the percentage of people we get is going to be roughly... 40% or 35% of the total population. So we're already getting into numbers. Um, God doesn't put people into situations that they're not able to handle. And he doesn't put them into a wilderness that they're not able to get out of. Just like 1 Corinthians says, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape so that you can bear it. So often we can fail spiritually because we don't get organized. We don't know our resources. We don't know our strengths and, and weaknesses. And this is part of what we do. I know a lot. Of, I know at Bethel they used to do kind of a personality inventory or just kind of a, a spiritual gifts test. And there's not a lot of science behind those things. But they're a way for you to organize your thoughts about knowing what you have, what resources you have, and what you can do. So before you march forward in the ministry or in life, you should know what you have and what's at your disposal. What are your gifts? What are the things you do have? So that's what they're doing. Verse 4. And with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. Um, so we're going to number and we're going to start to detail gene genealogies. These genealogies will later become the building blocks for the Jewish people to look for their Messiah. So by the time we get to Jesus, they're arguing over gene genealogies. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy not to get into those debates because they'll sit and use genealogies as an instrument of rhetoric and, and how they'll debate with each other. So, But at the same time, they're going to be how Matthew, in the first chapter of Matthew, how he proves Jesus is the Messiah. He does it with the genealogy first and foremost. And there's another genealogy in Luke 
where he does the same kind of thing. He's using genealogies to show Messiah because that's what Jewish people would do. And that's where this gets started is they can start to build that up. So it's time to get an update on where we're at. It's been a few generations. Uh, we need to know who's the head of the house. Nowhere does it say that the oldest person is the head of the house. And I just want to make a point of that because it's not always the oldest person that gets elected as the head of the house. Um, it is the most fit or the one God picks that gets put at the head of the house. So these are the names of the men, not the oldest men, not the head of the homes, but the men who will stand with you. I think it's really interesting how God starts and uses this phrase. The whole point is not to go charging into things. He's looking for people that will stand with them, not run, not walk, but stand. And in Ephesians 6, God instructs his people to stand their ground and gives them the armor of God in Ephesians 6. But the whole purpose of the armor, armor of God is to stand in place and hold your ground. And the whole purpose of assembling armies and organizing for census is to stand with people. And I think it's interesting that God often asks his people to stand and hold their ground faithfully. So with each of these people, we're going to see a new name that goes with the tribe. And the bad ones, like Reuben, <laughs> was called unstable like water. Um, from Reuben, we're going to get Ilizur, which means God is a rock. So instead of being unstable like water, the new name is God is a rock. And a lot of these names are the exact opposite of the promise that Jacob gave to the tribal name. Does that make sense? There's some exceptions as we get to the end, but they're almost all can easily be seen as like God has redeemed these tribes now. So if they're going to live under his law and do things, they get new names. And I love in the Bible when people get new names. And it happens often. God says, I don't like the name that you had in your old life. So in your new life, you're going to get a new name. And we're promised in the book of life that we will all be given new names. And God's doing that here for, you know, very systematically as he organizes the tribes. So verse six from, oh, these are the men of the, the men who will still stand with you from Reuben, Elizur, God is a rock, the son of Shedur. Um, so God is a rock is not unstable like water. From Simeon, verse six, Shalumiel, uh, at peace with God, the son of Sherushadai. Um, and remember, Simeon's name was that he would be cruel and scattered and without peace. That was kind of his curse. And now uh, Shalumiel is at peace with God. Between verses 6 and 7, you'll notice a name is missing. They do not include Levi in this list. The priests are going to come later. They get their own special section. Verse 7, we get to the third son, which is Judah. Nashan, um, the son of Aminadab. Um, Judah's old name was that people would bow down to him. Um, and Nashan's name is an enchanter and not in a bad sense, not in a sorcerer sense, but an enchanter in praise, someone who helps lift people up to God. So instead of people bowing down, now we have people that lift up to God and the names are kind of opposites. If you're tracking Jesus's line through the old Testament, Nashan will be in Jesus's lineage. So just so you know, Judah to Nashan is where we're at at this point. Matthew 1, 4 is where you'll find that. Verse 8, from Issachar, Nathanael uh, is the son of Zuar. So instead of being lazy and enslaved, we now have Nathanael, who's a gift from God. From Zebulun, Eliab, which is God is a father, the son of Helan. Um, 
that one's kind of a tricky one because Zebulun was told he would dwell by the seashore and make good friends with the Gentiles. Now we have Eliab who, where God is their father instead of hanging out with Gentiles. So that's all of Leah's children. Then we're going to move on to Rachel's kids. Um, note that these lists are right now organized by maternity. So after 400 years, we're not doing birth order anymore. We're doing which mom was there. And there seems to be some sense of that that's a big deal to the Jewish people at this point. So from the sons of Joseph, uh, there's Ephraim. Uh, that the, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, which is God has heard, the son of Imihud, and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, God is rewarded, the son of Pedazur. Pedahazur. So Joseph has two branches, and because the Levites were pulled out, we now have two. That keeps us at 12 tribes of Israel. Um, this one actually pretty much agrees with the prophecy for Joseph's kids, seems to be consistent on these two names, but not with Benjamin. Verse 11. From ben Benjamin, Abidan, my father is a judge, the son of Gideon Nai. Uh, so Benjamin, remember, was called a wolf where there'd be no law with him. And now we have a legal term with Abidon, which is my father or God is a judge. Um, so instead of having no law, we have law. So Joseph and Benjamin are Rachel's kids. Uh, and then we get to the, the rest of the kids or the, the, the children of Zippah and Bilhah, the handmaidens. From Dan, Ahiezer, the brother of Help, uh, the son of Amim. Amini Shaddai, um, a brother of help is the opposite of a serpent on the way that bites brothers. Um, now we have a brother that's helpful instead of biting. Um, from Asher, we have Pajiel, Pajiel um, the son of Okran. Uh, Asher was going to be a baker who made food for people, but Pajiel is fortune directly from God. And remember, they're eating manna instead of bread right now. From Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deuel. I'm saying all these with a Minnesota accent. You all know that, right? Um, so uh, Gad was going to be trampled on by other people. <laughs> um, and Eliasaph says God has added. He's going to be built up by God. From Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. Uh, Naphtali is a deer that's let loose. He was going to be a word crafter, a smith with words. Um, and Ahira, this one doesn't fit at all. My brother is trouble. Now, who calls their kid that or names them that? I don't know. But in the Hebrew, it means my brother is trouble. So I want to know who Ahira's brother is now. But we don't get to hear that. Um, we don't know if there's a correlation. We don't know what it looks like. We do know that Naphtali got moved last out of birth order. And it's the one and only person that doesn't really have a name match where their name isn't the opposite of the tribal name in some kind of way. So they, I don't know, maybe they just, I don't know why that is, but there's seemingly reasons why these names get moved around because there's an order to them. Birth order, you can do it by order of who is their mom, but even with both of those applied, then Naphtali shouldn't be the last one, but he is. There were chosen from the congregation leaders of their father's tribes, heads of the divisions in Israel. So now we have generals. Levi's excluded, we'll get to him. God names things and God counts things. And I think those are two lessons that we should know here. You want to get out of the wilderness in life? Start naming things truthfully, right? Identify the things that you have and name them accurately. 
and don't use the old names, use God's names for things. Are you in the doldrums because you're lazy? No, maybe that's an old name, but God made you not lazy starting today and take on the truth of things. You're not meant to be lazy or whatever the problem is that puts you in the wilderness or in the doldrums, start identifying and using the scriptures to call things true and know what they are truthfully. In Psalm 147, uh, verse 44, he telleth the number of stars and he calls them all by their names. That's what God's doing right here. He's counting them and he's numbering them and he's calling them by name. And I think that's kind of a cool idea. Isaiah 40, 26 has the same kind of idea. Lift up your eyes and behold who's created all things that the bringer out of their host by number and he calls them by names by the greatness of his might for he for that he is strong in power and not one fails. The first thing Israel does is they're getting numbered and they're getting named. And I think sometimes in life that's a big piece. Um, he doesn't stop, of course, in Matthew 10:30. The very hairs on your head are numbered. Everything in your life is numbered. So if you're organizing your life, start thinking of what are the numbers in my life? How do I spend my time? Where do my hours go? And if your hours go, go towards thing that get, things that get you out of the wilderness, that's good. If your hours are going towards things that just leave you in the doldrums, that's not good. So he numbers things and he counts things. Verse 17. Then Moses and Aaron took these men who had been mentioned by name and they assembled all the congregation together. And on the first day of the second month, they recited their ancestry by families, by their father's houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and above, each one individually. This is a massive event. Think of what this takes. We're going to see the numbers here soon. But if they're having to speak the name of each person over 20 years old on the entire nation, those names are being accounted for and tallied. This is massive, careful, and precise accounting of the nation that's going on. And they're getting recorded. So they're creating paper records of these genealogies and who's where by every family, every individual name. God numbers the hairs on your head and he gets every name of every adult in Israel named off. And I think this is kind of cool. You want to see the nature of God. God's incredibly organized. Even though this is done in the assembly, it's still accounting for every individual. Every individual is responsible for what's going on here. So God asked them to name each person. Verse 19, as the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. <laughs> They're thinking, are we going to start marching soon? Or are you just having us cite our names off? And that's what he's doing. Now the children of Reuben, Israel's oldest son, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, every male individually from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war, anybody who was fit for battle, those who were numbered of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Israel's oldest son, we have Reuben. Age is not really the, how this is going to get sorted out here entirely, but at least for the first one, we're starting with the firstborn son. Then verse 22, the children of Simeon, their genealogies by families, by their house. So all the tribes had to sit and listen to the other tribes shout out all their names. I mean, this would have taken weeks, right? This would be a massive kind of event. Um, what was going through their head? Like, they, they, I'm sure some of the cynics were going, why are we doing this? Um, or there was just that kind of this general buzz of like, we're getting ready to go. We're done sitting 
at the bottom of this mountain and we're getting ready to march. I don't know. It would have been quite a moment. Uh, so everybody was able to go to war. Verse 23, those who were numbered in the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. And if you're keeping track of the numbers, I'll give you the totals in a little bit. So we skip Levi again. We'll get to him in verse 47. For some reason, Gad gets elevated to third. So I don't know if it's that the different tribes have different like levels of prestige at this point. It's not by number. Uh, maybe it's the order of reporting, like Gad stepped up in line next or something. Uh, but Gad comes up as the third tribe that gets listed. Genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names from 20 years old and above. All who were able to go to war, those who numbered of the tribe of Gab were 45,650. Oddly enough, Gad is the only tribe that's rounded to the nearest 50. All the others are rounded to the nearest 100. So again, Gad's just a weird nut in a, you know, a square peg in a round hole in this chapter. Fourth in line is actually Judah. Um, so here Judah moves to the fifth spot um, if Levi is taken out, but that actually moves Judah back to the fourth spot. And maybe that's why they moved Gad up to take Levi's spot. So Judah would still be fourth. So you never know. From the children of Judah, the genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war, those who numbered of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. From the children of Issachar, their genealogies by their families, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, the 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war, those who numbered in the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. You don't even need to speed me up on the recording get through those. I'm just going to do it for you. From the children of Zebulun, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, 24 years old or 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who numbered in the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. Now we get to Rachel's kids from the sons of Joseph, children of Ephraim, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names from 24 years, 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who numbered in the tribe of Ephraim were 40,000 500. From Manasseh, I want to skip to the number, but I also want to do every word. Their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names from 20 years old and above, though all who were able to go to war, those who numbered in the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. From the children of Benjamin, their families by their families, by their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war, those who numbered in the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Other than Gad, now we have Bilhah and Zilpah's sons from the children of Dad. Their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war, those who numbered in the tribe of Dan, were 62,700. From the children of Asher, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, the 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war, those who numbered in the tribe of Asher, were 41,500. From the children of Naphtali, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, 20 years old and above, all were able to go to war. Those who numbered in the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. The tribes with Joseph's two sons now have, there are still 12 tribes because Levi got made up for right there. Verse 44, these are the ones who numbered, according to Moses and Aaron, numbered with the leaders of Israel, 12 men, each one, representing their father's house. That's why it's interesting when you look at the Hebrew meaning of those names. So now each house has a new name with a new meaning that's been ascribed. God has redeemed those kind of those curses that Jacob gave, and now they have new names ascribed by God, chosen by God. 
So all who were numbered in the children of Israel by their fathers' houses from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war in Israel, all who were numbered were 603,550. So there are people that critique these numbers saying these are far, far too high. It's impossible for that many people to live in the Sinai wilderness for any amount of time. The Bible doesn't say it's possible anywhere for 600,000 people to live in the wilderness. And that's just the fighting men. So double that for fighting women, and you've got a million too. Then add about 10 or 20% for kids, children under 20. Now you're at a million eight, million seven. Add another bit for people that are too old to fight, and you're right around 2 million people. The Bible never says that 2 million people can survive in the Sinai. The Bible does say, the claim of the Bible is that they were given water and manna from God in order to survive in the wilderness, right? So there's a, it's a miraculous claim, which I always think is weird. It's like when people say, well, I can't believe in Christianity because people can't walk on water. Okay, the Bible never says people can walk on water. It says God can walk on water and God can enable people to walk on water. So the, the plausibility of something happening that's supernatural only, it requires a supernatural being for it to happen. So it's odd when you hear those kinds of critiques of the Bible because the Bible makes a claim of the supernatural. It doesn't make any illusions or hides that at all. So some people say that 600,000 is figurative. It's only representative. It means they had different numbering systems. None of that makes any rational sense at all. And you're basically calling the Jewish people dumb and disorderly and ignorant, which is a big leap of faith to say those things about the Jewish people because they were anything but dumb and disorderly and ignorant. That is not definitive of the Jewish people or Moses or Aaron or anything. The kind of accounting we see here is unique to ancient scriptures or ancient texts. And it's way ahead of its time and way ahead of its game. So is it rounded to the nearest 50 or 100? Probably yes. So it's not they're not trying to be accurate to the person either. The pure size of this task without a computer is stunning of what they're doing here. To count that many people name by name spoken out loud, I would I would just round it and I'd be like, yep, that's about a hundred people. And you'd kind of, I mean it would be extremely hard to do this. Um, so I think it takes a lot of faith to say that they're not being accurate here because the they are. They're making every effort to be accurate. It's not a figurative passage. It's an accounting passage. Um, and we don't really doubt accounting passages from the Romans. We don't doubt them from the Greeks. We don't doubt them from the Assyrians or the Babylonians. People only doubt them when they're in a Bible that was actually kept and recorded from the, first, from the original documents. So the only reason to doubt this is if you have a secular interpretation and you do not believe in supernatural anything. Uh, which goes back to the original question. I'll get off that point. It's far more important is that the total of 600,000 isn't going to change much in 38 years. And that's kind of the point of this. The census at the beginning of the book, when we get to the end of the book, we're going to see that the numbers really don't change that much. God does not grow the population of Israel in the wilderness. The size of the tribes are going to grow and shrink dramatically but the end total will be about the same. In other words, certain tribes do the right thing, certain tribes don't, and God shrinks and moves the tribes so that they get the allotment of land that goes with the size of the tribe. Judah's the largest, Manasseh's the smallest, 
um, and we're going to see a lot of things mixing and changing in between. So God's going to grow and shrink their territory based on their faithfulness. Everyone gets an inheritance, but the walking in the wilderness determines how God allocates what they get when they get to the promised land. The same thing is promised to us in the New Testament. We're all going to get into heaven if we believe on the name of Jesus Christ. The crowns we get in heaven or the responsibilities we get in heaven are based on how we live our life in this wilderness that we go through. So the inheritance that we get will be different. Jesus even tells a whole parable about the different people that keep coins for their master and some of them are using them and some of them are not. And he'll take away coins from the person who doesn't use them and give them to the person who does. So where God gives everyone equality of acceptance into the kingdom of heaven, he does not give them equal status when they get there. A lot like what we saw at the end of Leviticus, right? God makes a promise and sees everyone as equal, but he actually treats people differently. Verse 47, but the Levites were not numbered according among them by their father's tribe. Every time something is different with Levites, Levi always reacts like, they're your favorite tribe, I can tell. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor take a census of them among the children of Israel. Why would they not count the Levites? Because we know from Leviticus that the Levites belong to God. They're his. You don't count his business. It's none of your business what God has in the, in the Levite tribe. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacles of the testimony, over all its furnishings, over all the things that belong to it. They, and this is where it's not good for Levites, they shall carry the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle was made of gold and silver and cedar and all these very heavy objects. They get to lug all of it and all its furnishings made of gold and silver and bronze. They shall attend to it and camp around the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is to go forward, the Levite shall take it all down. And when the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levite shall set it up. No outsider who comes near shall be put, or an outs the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Nobody messes with the tabernacle but the Levites. They're God's people. They take care of God's stuff, right? This is a major duty for the Levites. It's why they're not numbered. They don't get to go to war. That's not their job. Even when they travel, the Levites are set apart. You're not supposed to walk next to the Levites. They get their own space, which is nice because they don't get as much dust in their face, right? Um, so God's a God of order. Some things cannot be counted. God's holy stuff is for him to count alone. And we can plan our work for God. We can count everything, all 12 tribes. But we need to understand that only the Holy Spirit is going to count certain parts of what, what goes on in our life. So we can plan everything that we're capable of planning. But at some point, there's a part of what happens in our lives that's left to God that God counts, that God accounts for, right? And that's true as he's treating Israel here. And as Israel is a mirror for our walk with, towards God, God will move them when he plans to move them and he'll have them stay when he has, wants them to stay. And Jesus asks us to do the same thing in our lives. We stand when we're supposed to stand. We move when we're supposed to move. That's really frustrating if you want to move and God wants you to stay or vice versa. But God doesn't count that. He leaves that counting to himself and he has a different way of doing it. He counts us as righteous, Psalm 106.31, Romans 4.3. God counts us as faithful, Nehemiah 13.13, 13, or 1 Timothy 1.12, or 
God counts us as less than nothing and vanity in Isaiah 40, 17, or he counts us as sheep for the slaughter, Psalms 44 through 22. Biblically speaking, God counts humanity all the time. And the question either comes into two categories. Basically, he counts us as good people that he likes, or he counts us as not as defiant people that he doesn't like. And God numbers us very carefully, and that's a key biblical theme that we see here in Numbers. We move around God's holy tent of assembly, his congregation, his planning. Everything goes around the tabernacle, as our lives should be. Everything in our life moves around what God's doing in our life, or the Holy Spirit's place in our life. Verse 52, the children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp. So now they're organized by camps. Everyone by his own standard. They're going to get little banners. And that's super exciting, according to their armies. So they start sewing their banners. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall keep charge. The word there, charge, means to guard or protect of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they did. Love these sentences. When they do the right thing, Israel thrives. In the same way in our lives, we should be doing all the things that God tells us to do and we will thrive. The saints are supposed to camp all around this tabernacle. They're going to bear witness. They're going to care for and take charge and keep charge of those objects, which means they're polishing the bronze. They're shining up the gold and they're bearing witness. So when that tabernacle is set up and ready, that's all they have to focus on. That's their job versus other people's job. God gives people different jobs. We've got another major theme here. God's appointing some people to do some work and other people to do other work. And I think that's a key part. If you're lost in the wilderness and you're taking stock of your life, what's the work God's put in front of you? What's the work for tomorrow morning that God's given you? Do that to the glory of God. So he gives different jobs to different people. Ephesians 4, 11 and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping or the equipment, that's actually a noun, for the equipment of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's what he did with the Levites. He gave them that equipment to take care of. So if you're a roadie with a music group, your job's to take care of the equipment. And that's the phrasing that we have in Ephesians, for the equipment of the saints for the work of the ministry. The job of the people in the ministry is to take care of and provide what's needed for the rest of the rest of the believers to do what they need to do for the edifying of the body of Christ. So if we're a holy priesthood, we give people what they need to do worship and to serve. So God first gives them new names, then he determines their sizes, and then he sets the Levites apart and he organizes them with the tabernacle or the Holy Spirit at the middle of their life. What does that look like? We got to go to chapter two, because this is all, I think, the same kind of thing. So in chapter two, we got the formation of the camp and how they're supposed to order themselves for marching. So God assigned leadership in chapter one. His people are ready to move. God's doing his work through these leaders. And now in chapter two, they get told where to sit or were to march. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, every one of the children of Israel should camp by his own standard. Did I say they get banners? Uh, beside the emblems of his father's house. Wait, the banners got emblems on them? This is getting more medieval. 
and they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Uh, in Exodus, then, they must have been camping wherever they wanted to, wherever they could find a good patch of ground, which would have been like a moving mob or horde, right? But now they're not going to move like a mob or a horde. They're going to move like a military camp. And this is going to be something that the, the Canaanites would have seen miles and miles. They would have known that these people are out in the wilderness. So their own standard, note in verse 1 and 2, that's the key element. They're each going to get a standard that's going to be visibly, visibly telling them where to be. So each person in Israel will look around and see where their standard is and where they should go. There's some debates on the standards of Israel. And I think the debates are kind of interesting, so I'll bring them up. Some people believe that because you're not supposed to make any graven image, that the Jews did not put things on their standards. They just used colors. And the colors matched the 12 stones that were on the priest's vestments. Remember, there were different gems. And each tribe had a color that matched the gem. And the organization of the camp was the organization of the chess piece. Two problems with that theory. One, verse 2 says they had emblems on the banners. So you got to ignore that verse if you want that theory to work. Second problem with that theory is the, em the gems are organized three by three in a square. The camp is not organized in a square. Tune into how it's organized because I think that's pretty cool. On the east side, east side of what? East side of the tabernacle of meeting. So when they camp, the tabernacle's sitting right in the middle, and we're going to go out in each of the compass point directions. On the east side, towards the rising sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their names. Where was I? Shall camp according to their armies. And Nashan, the son of Amenadab, shall be the leader of the children of Judah. And his army was numbered at 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be of the tribe of Issachar, and Nathanael the son of Zuar shall be the leader of the children of Issachar, and his army was numbered at 54,400. 54, okay, so there's going to be a third tribe, then the tribe of Zebulun, and Eliab the son of Helon shall be the leader of the children of Zebulun, and his army was numbered at 57,400. And all who were numbered according to their names of the forces of Judah, 186,400, shall break camp first. So this is the order when they're going to get up and move. Those three tribes are the first to break camp, and they go first. It's kind of like when you go camping with your family and you got to take turns in the shower. You organize ahead of time who's going to go when so that you can sleep in if you want to. So if you're, on the, if you're in these three tribes, you don't get to sleep in. you got to get up and break camp. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people have to get up and start moving. Right, So this is kind of organizing how to do it. East is going to be the most prominent of the three compass directions. Why is it the most prominent? Because the tabernacle faces east. These three tribes, when they look towards God, see the door. So it's easiest for them to see it. That makes the tribe of Judah, who's closest to the tabernacle door of all the tribes, they're going to be the one that leads Israel through the wilderness. And the, the Judah gets this place of amazing privilege and prominence in part because he's the guy that went to bat for his little brother way back in Genesis. And Judah got elevated to the position of head of household over Reuben, who had sexual issues, and Simeon and Levi, who had violence issues. Judah rose to the top of that family, and he still, that tribe, gets the preeminence, preeminent position even now as the head of Israel or the first tribe of Israel. So Judah, the word means praise, is going to go first, and I love that image that when Israel marches through the wilderness, praise goes first. 
And if you're looking for mirrors for our own life, if you want to get out of the wilderness, look at your praise life. Are you worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth? And is that coming out of you freely and abundantly? And if it's not, pray for that. Because one of the ways out of the wilderness is to get up and praise the Lord. Turn your music on, crank it up loud, sing and dance around your house like a nut, and you're going to find your spirits are lifted. It's one of the first and best things you can do to get out of the wilderness. Let praise lead you and be the banner that you follow. Oh, banners. The banners, a lot of people, second theory on the banners is that they were based on the predictions of Jacob back in Genesis 49. And that each tribe was given an image and a lot of them had animals to go with it. So Judah in Jewish tradition is the lion because Jacob said that he'd be like a lion back in Genesis 49, 9. Uh, Jacob was like, called him a lion. So it's believed then, even though that these banners may have been color-coded, that's fine, it would have been easy to see the colors, and you follow the, the, the banner of the lion if you're in the tribe of Judah. So you just, it's like a parking lot at Rosedale, and you've got the little animal symbols to remember where your car is. This helps them to know what to follow. So it's believed that the, the banner of, of Judah, though we don't know what color it would have been, we do know that it would have likely had a lion on it. Okay, so the lion of praise goes out front. Um, it goes uh, in the beginning here. It rose to prominence and it goes. So let's do the south side. So we started on the east. We're going to go south of the tabernacle now. On the south side shall be the standard of the forces of Reuben, according to their armies. The leader of the children of Reuben shall be Ilizur, the son of Shidur. And this number army was numbered at 46,500. Those who camp next to him shall be Simeon. Uh, the leader of the children of Simeon shall be Shalumil and the son of Jerushaddai. And his army is numbered at 59,300. Then comes the tribe of Gad. And the leader of the children of Gad shall be Eliasaph and the son of Reuel. And his army was numbered at 45,650. And all who were numbered according to their names of the forces with Reuben, 151,450, because Gad gets 50. I don't know why. Maybe Gad was like kind of type A, and they're like, we're not going to round to the nearest 100. That's far too inaccurate. We're going to round to 50. Uh, they shall be the second to break camp. So now we get the eldest son, Reuben, the next, Simeon, and Gad. Uh, Gad seems to be filling the place for Levi in this kind of setup. So he's risen to, risen to that. Reuben's banner, Reuben is not the, Reuben's the closest to the tabernacle, but he's not the largest army. Size matters not, according to Yoda. And... The tribe of or the tribes of Israel. So Reuben gets the place of prominence probably because of his firstborn status, but not because of the size of his army. I think this is a key thing when you're lost in the wilderness and you're worried about your skills and talents that you've taken stock of and how you compare to other people. It's a fruitless, horrible thing to set your mind on. Because God doesn't compare Reuben to other tribes based. He doesn't do this by size or or what they've been blessed with. He does it by some other quality than numbers, right? So I just think that's an interesting thing to point out with the southern tribes. The uh, tribes, of course, in Genesis 49 are a lot of the bad ones. We got the people of the flesh, Reuben, the people of anger, Simeon, and the people that will be overcome and tramped on, Gad. So these are the three tribes that kind of, maybe nobody wanted to be with them and march with them, so they get their own wing. 
Uh, either way, Ruben's the first one, so that banner likely had a human being on it. It was the banner of man. So the image of Reuben was mankind or humankind. Um, and that's because he he was given to the flesh, right? He fell and, and, and defiled Jacob's couch. Verse 17, And the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the Levites. In the middle of the camps, as they camp, so they shall move out, everyone in his place, by their standards. So the Levites get are set apart and they move out third. They don't have tribes that go with them. No one travels next to them. Likely they had space in front and they had space behind. So the tabernacle moved all by itself in the middle with a little distance between Israel and the tabernacle. 18, we go to the west side. Shall be the standard of the forces of Ephraim according to their armies. The leader of the children of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of Amihud, and his army was numbered at 40,500. Next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh, and the leader of the children of Manasseh shall be Gamaliel, the son of Padazur, and his army was numbered at 32,200. Then comes the tribe of Benjamin, and the leader of the children of Benjamin shall be Abidan, the son of Gideonai, and his army was numbered at 35,400. All who were numbered according to their armies of the forces of Ephraim, 108,100 shall be the third to break camp. So these are all of Rachel's kids. They get their own wing of the camp. Uh, they get to you know hang out. Ephraim's the first and the closest to the tabernacle. Ephraim's army this time is the largest. His banner is going to be of the ox or the calf or the sacrificed animal. Right? So the Jewish tradition sees that his is the ox. Keep track of the banners. The standard of the forces of Dan shall be on the north, according to their armies, and the leader of the children of Dan shall be Ahiezer, the son of Aminashadai, and his army was numbered at 62,700. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher. The leader of the children of Asher shall be Pajaleel, the son of Okran, and his army was numbered at 41,500. Then comes the tribe of Naphtali, dirt last again. Um, <laughs> or as this old guy used to know, say, they are sucking hind tit. It's, he was on a farm, and that was how he would express that. But Naphtali is going to eat the dust of every other tribe in Israel. This is not a good marching position in any army. So Naphtali, the leader of the children, maybe that's why it turns out with a grumpy you know, prophecy, is because he's got... 38 years of eating other people's dust. And that's not going to be... Anyways, we'll move on from Naphtali. Mm -hmm. The leader of the children of Naphtali shall be Ahira, the son of Enon. And his army was numbered at 53,400. All who were numbered with the forces of Dan, 157,600, they shall break camp with their standards. Again, we get that highlighted that it matters what standard they're going with. So if all three of these tribes that march with Dan go with that standard... Uh, the symbols of Genesis would be um, would be important again. So in Genesis 49:17, Dan's associated with being tread upon or a serpent, but not now because in Jewish tradition, somewhere along the line, the banner for this tribe changed. Instead of it being a serpent, the Dan gets uh, through again through Jewish tradition is the banner of an eagle, and represents something that takes flight. Um, or lifts off, perhaps because of the new name or because of Ahira's name, and, and be, perhaps because of that. The serpent seems to have been, you know, set aside or put away. 
God's redeemed Naphtali from that image. And he says he'll be a, a judge. And maybe that has the meaning with an eagle. So the eagle is the bird of judgment or something to that effect. We don't know that, but we do know that somewhere along the line, the curse of Jacob was not used over time because the Jewish people always associated Dan with a banner of an eagle. This is interesting. So as they marched, the camp layout, well, first of all, there's a couple of things. Note that the aerial view of this camp goes from a tabernacle in the middle to north, south, east, and west. To the east, we have 186,000. To the south, we have 151,000. To the west, we have 108,000. To the north, we have 157,000. So the north and the south are roughly 150,000, about the same size. To the west, we have a shorter size by about 50,000. So we only have 100,000. To the east, we have a lot bigger size with 186,000. So you've got a not a perfect cross. You've got a cross that looks more like a cross, right? So this isn't a red cross. This is a cross like you wear around your neck. Right? You've got a short side and a long side opposite each other and two equal sides opposite each other. Literally speaking, when they made camp from an aerial view, you're looking at the shape of a cross wherever they went. That's how they organized their camp. Right? They did it that way not because they knew Jesus would die on a cross, but because God told them to do it that way. So God's setting up and organizing his camp in a way that means something and is organized. It also has a really practical thing. Instead of a big round circle... The problem with camping like a mob is that the sanitary issues get really hard and whoever's closest to the tabernacle has the longest trip through other people's stuff to get their sewage out of the camp. Does that make sense? So when you go to the beach and you want to use the restroom and you got to walk past people's towels and everything, it's a real pain. Or if you're at a concert and you got to go get a snack and you got to walk through the concert, being at the front is a bad thing because you got to walk through all those people. But God wanted it to be where if you're at the front at a concert where they're singing praise at the tabernacle, there should be spaces where you can easily get in and out of that space. So the cross shape makes it really practical for anybody at any place on that cross to get access to the tabernacle and then also to get their ref, their, their garbage and their sewer away from the camp easily and have paths to do that. So it has a practical purposes too. As they travel, they're literally going to cross over the land. And I like that idea too. <laughs> All right. I also like, if you want another really bad pun, and I'm not the only one that makes bad puns, Jesus does too. Listen to Mark 12, verse 21, and listen to the pun he makes. I think he's thinking of, the, of numbers one and two. Then Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said, because you only make bad puns with people you love. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Take up the cross and follow me. And he's basically telling him like he would tell an Israelite to take up the cross and follow him. And that's what he asked the Israelites to do too. Does that work? I'm looking to Grant. Does, is that good? Literally, that's what the Israelites did every day in the wilderness. They picked up their cross and they followed God where he told them to go. It's literally what Jesus tells us to do in the new covenant. Every single day, as we go through our lives in this wilderness till we get to the promised land, we're supposed to take up our cross and follow him. And we do that in an orderly way. We do that in a way where we've numbered and counted our blessings. We do that in a way where we let praise lead the way and guide us. And we get even better. It keeps going. Verse 32. There, 
these are the ones who were numbered of the children of Israel by their fathers' houses. All who were numbered according to their armies of the forces were 603,550. And we know where the 50 came from. But the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel just as the Lord commanded Moses. Because God's a God of order and he sets himself apart even in the middle of our lives. Right? So there's only so much we can do for God if we're not organized. And we don't leave room for the Levites in our life. Think about this. If we don't carve out time in our schedules for God, we don't keep God at the center of our life. If we don't set aside our tithe at the beginning of our financial day, we're not setting that and making that set aside. So God's setting aside and pulling out those things that are his, and he's making that kind of a foremost organizing principle around this. So God moves and works through our lives and through the church. God's order is his order. It wouldn't make any sense to the Israelites why they were ordered this way. Honestly, it would have pretty gotten some of the tribes pretty angry because they would have felt slighted. Naphtali getting moved to the bottom of the birth order would have probably been an affront to Naphtali. Naphtali not getting a better name to go for his tribe and everybody else got a name that seems to have redeemed from Jacob's curse. Um, you wonder how many of the people that resisted Moses were coming out of the tribe of Naphtali and that maybe they're getting kind of set to the back because of uh, what they've done and how they've done things. So God's order is not how humans would order it. We would tend to go by the size of the army, by the birth order, or even by protection. You'd want to put the bigger armies to the outside of the cross and maybe make a more defensible position. That's how we think. God has some other order that's not explained to us, but it's clear that he's changing the order for his own purposes. God does that in our life too. There's times in our life when it feels like we're in the wilderness and God's rearranging things in a way that doesn't make sense to us. But if we're receptive to it, it makes us ready to move out of the wilderness too. Everything's orders around God in the middle and God's presence. And it's not our order, it's his orders. It's not our focus, it's God's focus. Verse 34, Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped, and again we get this emphasis, by their standards. So they broke camp, each one by his family, according to their father's houses. So I'm going to come back to the standards thing, and let's come back and sum that up. The banners may be correlated to colors. We know for sure that the Jewish people, and we don't know if they did it this time, but they eventually put images to go with each of these tribes. And we know that the first one was the lion, the second one was the man, the third one was the ox, and the fourth one was the eagle. So it's, it's, it's not a huge stretch to say that when we travel with God, <laughs> the lion goes first before the humans, God leads the humans, and for the, the Mosaic era, he's going to lead them with the sacrifices, the oxen. And through the, the, the era of the church, he's going to lead us through the eagle or the Holy Spirit. And, and in some ways, that image, it's not a huge stretch to see what's there. And I wouldn't make that stretch if it didn't emphasize that they were marching by their standards. Over and over and over again, we saw this in, the, in this chapter. They marched by their standards. And those standards were things they would look to like you would look to a place to go. It's a, a benchmark for where you should be. So praise leads the way. You've got the ark in between. Actually, we'll see in the, in the coming chapters, the ark will travel separate from the tabernacle. So it's going to be the lion of praise. The ark of God sits between God and man. And then the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit is going to be um, served by calves 
and then by eagles. And we shall mount up on wings like eagles, is what, that's Isaiah, right? Um, so the images of these things come throughout the Bible. We're going to see how they get used and how they get taken. But we see that right at the beginning of the numbers, that's the plan for God. Okay, This thing is a human-made message throughout the Bible for us to see. It gives some light to Ezekiel's prophecy. And I think this is cool because if you study numbers, you start to understand other parts of the Bible that are totally confusing without the book of Numbers. Listen to this in Ezekiel. It's a prophecy about the end of days. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, and they four had the face of an eagle. You see a pattern? Same faces of the nation of Israel, right? In all four directions, these nations faced with these banners facing these directions. So that Ezekiel prophecy is far less confusing when you understand the by their standard statement in the book of Numbers. And I think that's awesome. I think that God makes us dig for truths in his word that are really cool. It's also in the book of Revelation, you see the same set of banners. Uh, it's also in the book of Revelation on beasts that sit before the throne of God, just like Israel is surrounding the tabernacle of God. And on each side of the tabernacle, there is a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. Listen to Revelation 4, 6. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne, around about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion. The second beast was like a calf. The third beast had the face of a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. The image of Israel sitting before the throne is a heavenly pattern that God makes happen in Israel. And it's something that John sees in his prophecy in the book of Revelation. And it's the same thing that Ezekiel sees when he makes his prophecy about heaven too. There's a pattern in heaven and it's going to be there. The two heads of the tribes, the one, the earthly name of the tribe is Reuben. But it seems like they've been given a new name like Eliezer that's God's name for them. And in the heavenly kingdom, it's the new name that's going to matter, not the old name. The same goes true for you. In Revelation 4.10, just a few verses later, there's noted that in heaven there will be 24 elders in heaven. This chapter, chapter 1, tells us perhaps where the number 24 came from. There's not one name for the tribe of Reuben. There's two official names for the tribe of Reuben. There's two heads of this tribe. There's Reuben and there's Eliezer. There's like water and there's like a rock. And those two names are going to be there. So it could be that in Revelation, when they're talking about 24 elders, they're actually referring to these two men. And that these two men are there and the number adds up to 24, which is the same thing. Again, we're in the book of Numbers. We get to count things. So Revelation, and I'll just kind of as a parting thought, Revelation and other books of prophecy become far less confusing when you've done your homework and you've read the Torah. And you've read these parts of the Bible that, that seem to be kind of Passover things when you first get saved or fall asleep kind of passages. These are tough chapters to read on your own. And that's why Bible study is nice. Levi and I were just talking about this. But Revelation becomes a far less confusing book when you've read the entire word of God. I think it's why they put Revelation at the end of the book is that you're supposed to have studied the whole book before you get to that one. And those images then become very unlocked. You'd read that passage and go, oh, that's the nation of Israel sitting around the throne of God. 
and John's describing it by the banners that he saw that are the same banners that would have flown for 38 years over these tribes and even for hundreds of years as they move forward. God mirrors in the future, or he mirrors through Israel what's going to happen in the future, and he guides history so that it plays out according to his plan. That's called revelation. God reveals his plan to us through all of these images and what he's doing. And it makes it so it's not a confusing thing. Uh, when we put our faith in God, we know what the whole plan is from beginning to end. God has a plan for us, if I'm going to bring it back to the individual level. When you're in the wilderness and you're taking stock of your life, you're putting God in the center of your life, you're marching when he says to march, you're stopping when he says not to stop, you find your banner and you march with it, you find your people, your denomination, you, you find that group of believers you want to hang with and live life with and spend life with, and you follow that banner because that's the crew God puts you in. When you do all these things, you can start to see his plan for your life. And it's not an individualistic plan. It's a plan that goes by family. It's a plan that goes by tribe, or we could say it goes by our church, right? God has us working in congregations. He only names 24 people. 12 of those are already dead when he names them, right? So he, not very many people get named at an individual level. People are individually accountable because they all speak their name out but it's not recorded here, right? So he moves according to these tribes. So if God has a plan for us and it's in a congregation, what role are we supposed to play? Most of these two million roles that get played are to take care of their own tent, right? Take care of your own family. Get things ready and when your tribe's ready to move, you're ready to move with them. When things are gonna happen, you do things with them. Um, take care of your own business. So you see what's in front of you, what your role is, what are you doing? What are you organizing for? What are you taking stock of in your life? What are you preparing for? And if God's ready to move in your life, you should have been preparing for that move a long time ago. Otherwise, when that opportunity comes up, you're going to be stuck in the wilderness for another year and another year. And the Israelites are going to spend 38 years missing that opportunity until they're prepared to take advantage of what they get. So they're going to get to the Holy Land right away. They're going to see it right in front of them. And new believers have that all the time. They see immediately what they should do as a new believer. But then they get scared to do it and they back away from it and they get frightful and fearful and they don't do those things they know they've been called to do right up front and they're going to spend 38 years wandering in the wilderness. What's your job? What are you prepared to do? What are you organizing for? And then the last kind of convicting question out of these two chapters is, are you ready to go when God calls you to go? When God gives you that opportunity, are you ready to take it? And have you put the work and time in it? We're never going to be as organized as God. And we're never going to understand how God organizes things. But our job is to be ready to follow the banner when the banner moves. That's the job of all the Israelites. When your banner moves, you need to have your stuff ready to go. So Jesus tells us things like um, that even the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. And he says things like, Take up your cross and follow me. And he says, and he asks people to follow him. He goes to his disciples. I love those scenes where he approaches his disciples and he says, come and follow me. And they leave everything and they follow him. So Jesus knew exactly which 12 men to go to. That's another theory on the 24, by the way, is the 12 disciples and the 12 heads of the tribes of Judah. But that's another thing. He knows exactly who to go to, who's been preparing and ordering their life in such a way that when Jesus calls, they're ready. And only God would know how to do that. Because what kind of people just get up and leave their job and leave everything behind to go follow a prophet, right? And these are people that when God called them, they were ready to go. 
And I think Jesus asked the same thing of his disciples today. When he calls and says, come follow me, are we ready to do that? And have we organized our lives in such a way that we can do that and be responsive to what the Lord calls us to do? In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Numbers. Thank you, Lord, for putting your truths uh, and burying them, Lord, and making them things that we have to work for and that we have to seek for. Thank you for the amazing revelation of the Word of God, that you have put things in there that would that make sense in the full context of the Bible, um, that we need to cross-reference and we need to study and learn. And Lord, thank you for giving us a lifetime to do that, because that's what it takes. Lord, open our eyes and our ears. Help us to be ready for your call. As we organize to move through the wilderness with the book of Numbers, Lord, help us to prepare our hearts for that, Lord, to take stock of our lives, to know what we spend our, our time and our money and our, and our attention, Lord, where we put our worship. Um, help us to number those things and account for those things and to take stock of those things. Lord, help us to know that we have a new name that you've given us a new name. And that name is often the exact opposite of our weaknesses and the exact opposite of our sins, that those things that Satan tortures us with are the things that you want to use. Um, Lord, help us to be like rocks and not like water. Uh, help us to just uh, to, to rise instead of fall, to build instead of be tread upon. Uh, Lord, help us to um, be our brother's helper and not our brother's curse. Uh, Lord, help us to just in each one of those ways, Lord, be what you have named us to be and to do that with faithfulness. Lord, when our banner moves, we want to move with it. Let there be nothing in this world that ties us down in such a way that we can't respond to you, that we turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to you, Lord. Help that never to happen. Uh, bless us. Be with us. Lord, I just pray for your anointing on the people in our lives. Keep us healthy. Uh, keep Alyssa's uh, back healthy. Um, that, uh, Lord, that we can physically move when you need us to move. Uh, Lord, keep our friends and family safe, those that are in the National Guard and serving with the police right now. Uh, bless them. Uh, we just have chaos all around us, Lord, and you tell us that's one of the signs that you're coming. Um, and Lord, help us to be safe through those things. Protect and guard the people we love. Watch over them. May there be peace in our city. May you dramatically bring calm and love uh, and compassion and care for those people that have built a city um, and cared for it and love it and make their home there. Uh, Lord, help us to be safe. Uh, Lord, help us to um, be lights that shine in a confusing age, in an in a age that's just uh, traumatic for people. Uh, help us to be put our faith in you because we know you're still on the throne, and that gives us great joy, great happiness. Help us to be caring and compassionate for others uh, even when they are a wreck. Um, Lord, help us to share our peace with them and our joy and our love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.